0: For those of you who have been with us the last couple of weeks, whether here in the service in person or tuning in online, you might recall uh, the ongoing saga of trying to identify uh, whose bulletin was left here a few weeks ago with tremendous notes written from top to bottom. I've mentioned it several times, and I'm glad to report to you this morning that we found the rightful owner of those notes. I should have known all along it belonged to Miss Angie Wartman, the best note taker at EMC. So Angie, you get your prize, you get your... (laughs) You got your notes back. Thank you for taking such good notes. Uh, Some of you, however, took my challenge to take good notes, or to take, I should say, a lot of notes, perhaps a little too literally. I was handed this uh, last week, um, and I'm going to ask them to put the uh, zoom in on the screen up there for you. This would be the word notes repeated 360 times courtesy of my daughter Savannah and Gabby Merritt. So Gabby and Savannah, thank you for your very literal interpretation of my challenge. But I have to say it's not nearly as bad as the drawings that Hannah Geegan and Brianna Borst used to do every Sunday of me uh, with, with bird hands and feet. I don't know where that came from, but apparently to them, I have bird hands and feet. So, all right. All right, enough of this nonsense. We're going to continue our exploration through the sign passages of the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn to John chapter 6. If you happen to grab one of those uh, guest Bibles in the back, or if you want to grab one now, you're welcome to go grab one of those. They're at all the exit doors there. We're going to be on page 857. Um, Over the last several weeks, we've been working through this first half of John and looking at the various sign passages we've seen. Jesus turned water into wine and we've seen him heal the royal official's son and heal a a man who was sick and we've seen him feed uh, the multitudes in the wilderness, some 10 to perhaps 20,000 people with with very little and much left over. Uh, But today we're going to be looking at a very short passage in John. It's the one where uh, Jesus appears to his disciples in the dark on the sea in a storm walking on the water. So if you would, Uh, John chapter 6, beginning here in verse 16. That evening, that is the evening after feeding the multitudes in the wilderness, that evening Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified. But he called out to them, Don't be afraid. I am here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. Now, it's worth noting that in the previous account that we looked at last week, where Jesus fed the multitudes out in the wilderness this crisis of a shortage of, of enough provision for all the people, um, John gives us insight into the mind and the heart and the intentions of Jesus in verse 6 when he says that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. You can't help but get that sense every, in every situation here in the gospel of John that what seems random and unexpected to us, in fact, is never the case with Jesus. He's always in control. He always has purposes in mind. He always has plans that he's carrying out in his own perfect timing, in his own perfect way. This was that same evening. That after everyone had, had left and Jesus had fled into the hills, uh, Matthew and Mark, in their version of this account, tell, tell us that, that Jesus told his disciples to go get in the boat and start and head out toward you know, their next destination. But John tells us here in verses 16 and 17, like I just read, that, that they're waiting around for him until dark. And so you, you almost get a, a full, you get a fuller sense of what's going on here when you take all the gospels' accounts together. So Jesus told them to get in the boat and go. In other words, I want to go spend time alone. I'm going into the hills by myself. You guys go on ahead without me. I'll meet you there. But then John says they are waiting around. So you see, you have the command to go, and then you have their reluctance and their hesitation to go. Now, Jesus is here in the hill country to begin with because of his need to get away from everybody for a little bit. He had learned about the death of John the Baptist, and he needed time to be alone. He needed time to be with the Father. He needed time to mourn and to pray. You know, that sort of conflicts with some of our, perhaps, perceptions of what Jesus is like or what the media has portrayed him to be like. Jesus is not some stoic, sort of uncaring, unmoved figure, this, this sort of detached person that's always kind of living sort of out there somewhere. You know, we're all living life here and we all know what it's like to, to share in the human condition, but not Jesus. Jesus sort of detached and he's sort of out there and, and separated from us somehow, but that's not the case at all. No, Jesus experienced the pain of suffering loss. Jesus experienced the toll and the burden of being needed I know there's some parents in here that are about to shout out of their chair and say, amen, the toll and the burden of always being needed. Jesus felt that. Jesus knows what it's like to be pursued and sought after to the point of exhaustion. And Jesus also knew deeply how essential it was to, to get away, to take a break, to spend time with the Father. Dorothy Sayers and her In her work Creed or Chaos, wrote this For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and even death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well, worthwhile. I hope there's something freeing to you here this morning, those of you who perhaps are grieving right now, or perhaps those of you who have, have, filled, have felt pursued to, to the point of exhaustion, to the brink of, of wanting to give up, and those of you who feel the need to take time to get away, I hope there's something freeing to you about the example of Jesus here. It is true there can be a, a sinfulness to our you know, our need to be alone. There can be a, a sinfulness to wanting to be uh, you know, isolated. There's a, a self-absorption sometimes that is connected to that. But there's also a healthy kind of retreat. There's a, a healthy kind of getting away that is really necessary for you to, to properly care for your soul. And in his humanity, the Lord himself shows that that is something that is not wrong. There's nothing bad about that. You need to to acknowledge that just as the Lord Impose those types of limitations on himself and those needs upon himself, he's releasing you to have those limitations and needs yourself. I also hope that Jesus' example here motivates those of you this morning who need to persevere in your pursuit of a daily quiet time with God. Those of you who perhaps think that, yeah, I, I believe certain things, I, I assent intellectually to a, the list of Christian beliefs, the, the doctrines, I, I hold those all to be true, but you, you view the, the daily intimacy of, of walking with God, reading your, your Bibles and praying and spending alone time with, with the Father every day, you view those things almost as optional, as, as if they're, they're not all part of the same thing. Christianity is believing certain things, but it's not necessarily walking with God on a daily basis in any meaningful sort of way. I hope you are challenged here this morning by the example of the Lord himself, For God, and and not just for Jesus and his humanity, but for the Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past. For God, life is communion. And you and I who were created in that image, it is no different for us. Real life, capital L, is only found in communion with God. And Jesus has shown us the way to find true wholeness, true wellness, true balance in this life. So Jesus has slipped away, the disciples knew what they were supposed to do, and yet they, they delayed until darkness fell, and now they're left with no choice but to go ahead and do what he asked them to do in the first place. And I think that detail there in verse 17 is key here. When the, the, the translation I read from here says, darkness fell. And if you recall from our previous times, looking through John, when John gives us little details like that, it's not just for the sake of the historical fact of the time of day. No, John is, is giving us facts that are about more than just the time of day. John is, is telling us something about what's going on here. John is writing and arranging his gospel theologically as much as anything. And what's interesting to me In these six verses that I've read, how several themes that are found throughout the Gospel of John all kind of converge at a really unique point in the the, the composition of his Gospel. We've already noted how John uses water symbolically, haven't we? The passage here is no different. The sea represents more than just a body of water that the disciples found themselves on. Throughout the Bible, as we've noted many times before, the sea is often used symbolically to describe chaos and disorder. And, and no doubt, John had that in his mind as he's recounting this, this moment. He see, he's connecting the dots. He's seeing the things that the Bible has, has used water to illustrate and symbolize and the points that the Bible has, has made throughout from the beginning up until this point. And he's bringing all of that freight, and he's bringing it here to make a point. But there's also present in John not just the use of water symbolically, but the use of darkness and light as a motif. From the very beginning, in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 4. In the beginning was the Word, and he says here in verse 4, the Word provides life-giving light. The Word provides light. In other words, the Word provides revelation. The Word reveals. He discloses the truth about God, and his life is light to men. In chapter 3, we're told that Nicodemus, that great, that great, religious leader there in Jerusalem, came to Jesus when? Under the cover of darkness. You might be thinking, well, that's just because he wants to avoid being seen, and there's some truth to that. But I think as John is, is, is unveiling this, this darkness and light motif throughout his gospel, we, we, we can read into that to see, yes, he's there to you know, be protected from being seen, but he's also there because he needs spiritual illumination. He needs Jesus, the light of God, to reveal something about God. And that's exactly what takes place in that chapter. Chapter 9, verse 4, this is perhaps the most helpful uh, understanding of, of darkness and light in the Gospel of John. Jesus himself says, night is coming. He's not telling his disciples, hey, it's getting dark outside, it's time to go to bed. No, when he says, night is coming, he's talking about the time in which he will be taken from his disciples. The light of the world. Is going to be taken from them. That's something we're going to be looking at a month from today. When Jesus says, "I am the light of the world," without Him, verse five of that very same chapter, we are in darkness. Without Him, chapter eleven, verse ten, we stumble in the darkness. Of course, who could forget, in chapter thirteen, verse thirty, upon betraying Jesus, we're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus, that Judas went where? Out into the night. So you see all throughout John, this, this use of light and darkness to make a deeper theological point, not just a, a historical detail of the time of day. And that, along with his use of water, converge right here in these six verses in a powerful way. Now, Matthew and Mark, when they talk about the, the time of day, they call this the fourth watch of the night. So we're looking at somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. It's that time when many of you um, wake up and start your day, it's also that time that many of us uh, wake up before we're ready to start our day, and we find ourselves having a hard time falling back asleep before the alarm clock goes off. You know that fourth watch of the night time. Many of you need to get up and use the restroom or get a glass of water. Maybe, maybe like Bobby, you're getting a snack in the kitchen. I don't know, but it's that sort of last segment of the night time before dawn breaks. And John says that at the point when Jesus comes to them this, in this fourth watch of the night, that they'd already been rowing in a storm for three or four miles. I cannot imagine how exhausted they were. We know that they're afraid, and there's probably a variety, of, we know there's a variety of reasons why they, they have fear, but no doubt one of them is the fact that they're stuck out in the middle of the sea in a storm in the middle of the night when they've run out of energy. But the point I think John wants us to see here is this. It's dark above in the sky, it's chaotic below in the sea, and as we think about these things theologically, I think the point is, well, it's also dark and chaotic in their hearts. So so the, the physical situation is mirroring the spiritual situation. It's dark in the sky, it's chaotic in the sea, it's dark and chaotic inside of them. And it's no coincidence that this passage fits right smack in the center of this section in John's Gospel on the signs of Jesus. This section that is all about Jesus making known the glory of his person, making known the true purpose of his mission, and here right in the center of it, as people are so misunderstanding the the person and mission of Jesus, that they're getting ready to to seize him and force him to do what they want him to do, to be who they want him to be, not allow him to reveal himself, not allow him to, to lead and do the things he wants to do. No, they want to make him be their king, to do the things that they want him to do. And it's no coincidence that right here in the middle of this, this event happens. Darkness and chaos defining the people, the very ones who are supposed to understand who he is and be following him where he is going. Despite all the signs that have intended to reveal his glory, no one gets it. No one gets it. In fact, Mark says the disciples' hearts at this point were too hard to understand. It's a spiritual darkness. It's a spiritual chaos that defines these men. Is that not a snapshot of the human condition apart from God? Striving endlessly in darkness, tossed about by forces in the world that are, that are greater than, than we are, aimless, helpless, desperate, the mind and the heart troubled and unsettled, clueless of or perhaps even hardened to and rebellious to the truths of God? What do you suppose the disciples thought about Jesus in the midst of the storm? Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Imagine what it's like to have this darkness and this chaos defining your own mind and heart, and here you are out in the middle of of the sea, in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the storm, and Jesus is nowhere to be found, what would you think about Jesus in that particular context? Well, perhaps they thought that he was unaware of their situation. That makes sense, right? After all, Jesus is safely on the shore. And he had told them to go on without him. I mean, if they had listened to Jesus, they should have safely been at their destination already. But Jesus according to their perspective, had no idea that he had, that they had delayed their, their departure and that they were now stuck on the water. So at, at least they might have thought that Jesus had no idea that they were in that situation to begin with. Or maybe they began to wonder if their situation was some sort of punishment for their delay. Maybe they were like many of us, they're very sensitive to, to your own heart and the things that you know you do that are wrong that you probably shouldn't do the 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 poor choices that you've made the trouble that you've gotten yourself into and and maybe they are like you and they were sitting there thinking well the situation we're in is is god's judgment on us we're getting what we deserve if we had just listened to him and done what he told us to do then we wouldn't be in the situation and it's all on us and we have no one else to blame but ourselves And in fact, when we get to our, if we ever get there, and we reconnect with Jesus, and he finds out that we delayed to begin with, he's probably going to kill us anyway. Maybe, Maybe that was what was going through their minds. I almost wonder, though, if what was going through their minds was something like resentment. Maybe they resented Jesus because he wasn't there. Maybe they felt abandoned. Maybe they felt like, well, you know, we just watched him miraculously provide for 10,000 people he didn't know. And yet here are the 12 of us who have left everything to follow him. Where is he now? Do you suppose that that went through their minds at some point? That he's abandoned us, he doesn't care, he cares about others more than us, he doesn't give me what I deserve I've earned his presence and his provision and his watchful eye, and in the, my hardest, most difficult situation I've ever experienced in my life until this point, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. Now, those assumptions, those, all those different assumptions about Jesus, are not all that unlike the various ways that you and I tend to think about God. That God's not truly aware of my situation. After all, if he was aware about my situation, I wouldn't be going through this difficult time, would I? Or perhaps you, you're you afraid that he's just mad at you about something, and every single bad thing that comes through your life, every thing that doesn't go your way, well, that's obviously God's judgment for the, the stupid things that you've done. Or maybe he is aware, but he's just nowhere to be found. And that, my friends, is the hardest thing to cope with as people of faith the idea that Jesus is aware of my need that Jesus is aware of my suffering or my plight or the danger that my life is in and yet he doesn't care listen it's for times like this when things are at their worst when our souls are restless in the darkest part of the night it is there perhaps more than ever that you and I need the truth of the word of God. Because it is the word of God that's going to give you the truth when everything else around you tells you a lie. When all of your emotions and all of the, the critics around you and all the, the doubts that the, the enemy of your soul likes to sow into your mind and your heart, when all of those things tell you that Jesus is aware but doesn't care, you and I need the truth of God, of his word, right in that moment. More than ever. Consider for a moment the words of Psalm 139. We've, we've read from Psalm 139 before, but I want to look there again, just, just part of the, the chapter. Just consider these words. By the way, the disciples should have known every single one of these words by heart. But look what the psalmist says here, beginning in verse one. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, You know my thoughts when I am far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. By the way, that that phrase, you go before me and you follow me, you've probably read that in other translations to say, you hemmed me in or you hemmed me in, which which is a word that I believe is also used elsewhere to describe a besiegement. Like when an army encircles a city to to besiege it. The psalmist is saying, you do that to my life. You besiege me. Such knowledge, verse 6, is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me, in the night around me to become in the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, darkness, even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. Notice how the psalmist connects God's omniscience to God's omnipresence. In other words, God knows all things because God is in all places. And God, therefore, knows even what's deep inside of me because God can see, because he's present even deep inside of me. He knows what's there even if no one else knows what's there. And it is true that in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, the the Son of God... Jesus Christ limited himself. And, and it is true, he, he laid aside certain, uh, um, ca- not characteristics, but certain, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, when, uh, well, certain aspects, I should say, of his divinity. Yes, he was still fully God, but he didn't, he didn't consider that something that he could exploit. He didn't take advantage of those things, he didn't use them for his own purposes. And yet, though he laid aside those, those certain things, we're told in John's Gospel back in chapter two, nevertheless, no one needed to tell him about human nature because he knew what was in everyone's heart. Don't forget the words of the Samaritan woman in chapter four, verse 39. He told me everything I ever did. Maybe that freaks you out a little bit. <laughs> Maybe it freaks you out that Jesus knows You that Jesus knows your thoughts, that Jesus sees inside your heart. Jesus knows every single thing you ever did, even the things that no one else in the whole world knows about. I'll never forget my first um, Kairos weekend where I got to go with other volunteers into the the prison just just up the interstate there and um, got to minister to a a group of residents there at the prison, people who had committed terrible crimes and were paying the price for their decisions and um, we spent several days just sitting around tables and uh, getting to know each other and singing songs and hearing lessons and um, just uh, forming relationships and and the goal of course is to present the gospel message to to these men and give them hope and that that God can bring transformation to to their lives. It's an incredible experience. If you've never been a part, men, if you've never been a part of, of going in the prison with Kairos, I encourage you to try try it out sometime, it's a little intimidating, but it's 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 such a blessing to be a part of that ministry. And I'll never forget my first experience. Over the days, I forged a, a relationship with one of the men there at the table, a younger man um, who was there for I, I think he'd been there for a few years. I think uh, his his sentence was around twenty to twenty five, something like that. And um, over the course of the weekend, we we kind of got close to each other, as close as you can get to someone in that kind of situation. And on the last day, he asked me if I would be willing to come and, and have a private conversation with him off to the side, which is one of the benefits of being a, a clergy uh, representative there. I, I could do that kind of thing. I could be alone with, with a resident and talk to them uh, at that level to, to hear what they had to say and give them counsel. And so we went off to the side and we were talking and, and he told me about how he believed in Jesus. He believed all the things that the Bible says were true, except this idea that that Jesus could ever really love him, or that Jesus could ever really forgive him. After all, uh, I won't share with you the the nature of his crime that got him there, but I'll tell you this, um, it was such that even the other prisoners would treat him as an outcast. How about that? Men who are serving perhaps life without the possibility of parole have their own sort of moral pecking order, as it were. And this gentleman was at the bottom. At the bottom. You know, there's this expression that I often hear volunteers in Kairos say. They say something like this um, to the residents. We're no different than you. The only difference is you got caught and we didn't. Now, I've always had a little bit of problem with that expression. It, it, on the surface, sounds like we're saying, I too have murdered and stolen, people, stolen things from people, but you got caught and I didn't. I, I know that's not what anyone means, but that's on the surface what it kind of sounds like, and I always kind of cringe when I hear that. But I, I think the, the essence of it is this. At the level of the heart, all of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned. All of us have done what is evil in the sight of God. And because of that, you and I, when we stand before a holy God, are on the same level. Just because you committed a certain crime that got you in prison, and I am not in prison, I've not committed that certain crime, doesn't mean that somehow I'm higher or better than you, or in God's eyes, somehow you know, morally superior in any way. And so here I was, trying to connect with a man who is so low that he was the lowest of the low who, yes, believed in in the words of the Bible and wanted to give his heart to the Lord, but could not be convinced that Jesus loved even him. It was in that moment when I could look him right in the eye, without blinking, because of the truth of God's word, and declare to his face the unconditional love and forgiveness of God. Unconditional. A.W. Tozer said it best Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, He is the one who loves you most. Isn't that amazing? That the one who knows you best, even at your worst, is the one who loves you most. Amen. All too often, friends, you and I feel hemmed in, (laughs) besieged by darkness. Darkness without, darkness within. Chaos all around. It seems All is lost. It seems no one truly knows or understands or cares. Jesus himself at times seems distant and unaware at best and unconcerned at worst. But it is in times such as this when we are besieged by the darkness, tossed about by forces beyond our control, toiling and striving and and pushing through doubts and despair, it is times like that where we need the word of God to penetrate the darkness, to convince us that in every situation in life, you and I, whether you realize it or not, or are aware of it or not, are besieged by the presence of a God who knows you and loves you and is at work in your life to do good things. Besieged by him. You hem me in. You are all around. Such thoughts are too wonderful for me. That even in this broken world, and in the suffering and in the the despair, in the darkness and the chaos, you are here. You're not distant. You're not on the shore while I'm out here struggling in the sea. You are here. Even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as the day. If the disciples had only seen the glory that the signs had pointed to, the truth of who Jesus really is, then even in their most dire moment they could have trusted in his nature and in his character. And what is true for them, friends, is true for you. If we could only see the glory that the signs pointed to, no matter how bleak, no matter how painful, no matter how hard your situation in life is, you can still trust in his nature and in his character. The one who knit you together in your mother's womb. The one who knows even the very count of the hairs on your head. And some of you guys are saying, well, that's not too hard to count up to begin with. So I'll extend it to say the count of every hair on your body. (laughs) The one whose eyes are on the sparrow. The one who keeps your tears in a bottle. The one who knows his sheep by name. The one who leaves the 99 to save the one. Recently, my daughter Savannah and I were standing in my bedroom, in my closet door, when it opens up, there's a full-length mirror there. And she was holding our cat named J.C., and though no, it does not stand for Jesus Christ. I'll, if you ever want to know the, the meaning behind his name, I'd be happy to tell you, but it's a long story, and we don't have time for it right now. But she's holding J.C., and she's trying to get him to look in, at himself in the mirror. Now, some of you have seen what happens when you do that with a cat, right? They see another cat looking at them, and then they're like, you know, there's another cat here. Not our cat, No. No, he just blankly stared. It looked like right through the glass. Just nothing registered whatsoever, just utterly clueless. And we were having a good laugh at his expense at just how simple he is. Cute, very cute. In fact, you're, you're going to have a hard time finding a more beautiful cat than, than him. But you're also not going to have a hard time finding a cat more stupid than he is. Just didn't connect whatsoever with what was going on. And my, my daughter made a comment that I, I read wrote down on my notes because it it stuck with me, she said, and I quote, laughing, he has no idea what he actually is. He has no idea that he's a cat. He has no idea that what is looking at him is anything worth looking at whatsoever. No idea, just clueless. And I wonder, as I'm thinking about this passage here in John, I wonder when you and I peer blankly into the darkness that engulfs us. When we're filled with doubts and fears, I wonder if we do so because, like the disciples here, we have no idea who he actually is. Or should I say, what he's actually like? You see, it's one thing to assent to a creedal statement that declares the the divinity of Jesus. I know what he is. But it's another thing altogether to walk daily with him and to come to know who he is, what he's like. And I wonder if our despair and our fear and our doubts that we struggle with on a daily basis are because we've put too much invested into this and not enough into this. It's not enough to know what he is. You have to know who he is, to know his heart, to know his mind, to know his person. That's what he wants to reveal. That's what the signs are all about. Not that just so you can know what I am, but you can know who I am for you. But listen, it is there in your darkness and in your chaos that Jesus is making himself known. Don't miss that this morning. Because there's purpose behind your suffering. There's purpose in your chaos. Light is most visible in the darkness. And it's right there, in the darkness and in the storm, where Jesus discloses himself most dramatically, most clearly. He is indeed light, and his light is life. And he calls out amidst the darkness and amidst the chaos and declares, Don't be afraid. I see you, I know you, I care about you, I'm coming to you, I'm making myself known to you, I am here for you. Oh, how precious indeed are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them for they outnumber all the grains of sand in all the world. Don't miss the, the Exodus backdrop to this story. We've referred to it before in previous messages as we've worked our way through John. If you miss it anywhere else, don't at least miss it here. Listen how that story back in Exodus chapter two begins. This is from the very last couple of verses there in Exodus chapter two. It says, the Israelites groaned under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose to God and God Heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people and he knew that it was time to act. And then it was God who delivered his people through the Red Sea. It was God who supernaturally sustained his people in the wilderness with bread that came from heaven. It was God who brought his people into the promised land through the Red Sea. I'm sorry, the Jordan River. And now, God himself has come again in the flesh, passing through the waters of baptism, sustaining his people once again in the wilderness, walking upon the waters of the sea, And no, this is no mere naked demonstration of power, just a sign for the sake of signs, just to to wow people with his ability to, to walk across the waves. No, the sign revealed his glory. His desire is to make himself known. He is the God who hears the deepest cries of your heart. He remembers his promises and he says, Fear not, for I will never leave you or forsake you, ever. And his words ring true for them then and for us today. And as you and I find ourselves engulfed in the torrents and in the swells of life in this broken world, Jesus comes to us in the midst of it all, walking on top of it all. And it takes faith. It takes faith to see him for who he is. It takes faith to see him walking on the waves and to hear him calling out to us in the darkness. Faith that is grounded in what? The truth of his word. Not just in some miraculous sign, but what the sign pointed to. The revelation of his heart, his character, his person. It takes faith to see it. Is your faith grounded in the, the truth of the word of God? What is your faith in today? Is it, some, is it in just some miraculous demonstration you saw once upon a time with your eyes? Or is it in the truth of his word that you heard with your ears that has taken root deep in your heart? What is your faith grounded in today? Do you believe in all that Jesus has ever said about himself? Are you willing to accept and embrace the besiegement of his presence and purposes for your life? Man, those are some big questions that I hope hit home to where you are in your walk today. The I am is here for you. Let us pray. Lord, it's one thing to stand in a pulpit and talk about these, these things as if they're so easy. And it's such another thing to walk through darkness and chaos. This world, it's a good world. You created it. You have plans for it. You're at work in it. And yet this world is still so full of brokenness and evil. Darkness all around. Darkness even at times within. Fill us with hope this morning, that there is indeed purpose behind it all, that you are revealing yourself through it all. Help us, Lord, to be the people who prefer your presence while we struggle in the storms rather than your absence on calm waters, who don't just desire what you can do for us from afar, but who desire you, yourself, to be near I pray, Lord, for every person in here this morning and tuning in online and anyone after whoever listens to this message. I pray that, that, that you would do a work in their heart so that they can make that transition from, from seeking you for what you can do to just seeking you for who you are. That's what it's all about. Intimacy, fellowship, communion, life in you. Jesus, you are life itself. Help us to trust you and look to you and walk with you moment by moment in all that we face. No, you don't always calm the storm. And sometimes we have to tarry through the night, but you promised even that when it's dark and even when it's chaotic, you are there. And that's enough for me. And that's enough for us. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your goodness always.